Good evening, and welcome to Nighty Night with Rabia Chadri. Bedtime stories to keep you awake. I'm DJ Lubel, the show's producer. Tonight's tale is about a woman who forgot the golden rule of survival. When it comes to strangers, being polite can be deadly. Please enjoy The Little Hairs. Once upon a time, there was a woman who learned too late in life to listen to her instincts. Manners. Girls are taught that, above all, no matter the situation or circumstance, the thing that will make us appreciated and valued and successful is our ability to make everyone around us more comfortable, to put everyone at ease, to tell others through word and deed that their happiness, however fleeting, is more important than our own. The older we get, the deeper this gets entrenched. Sloppy kisses from tipsy uncles? Well, don't squirm away. Leering glances and uncomfortable touches from a friend's dad or a teacher? Well, don't get him in trouble now. Inappropriate compliments from strangers in a long elevator ride? Just say thank you. Don't piss him off. We do it because we are taught that it's our role. We're taught it's our burden. We're taught that it's just good manners. I was certainly raised with these manners. In fact, I've always prided myself on my ability to navigate complex or delicately fraught situations by relying on my manners to carry me through to a gentle resolution on the other side. I was never taught that they might betray me, that my manners might spell my murder. I started acting as a little kid. I was pushed out onto the stage by one of those moms eager to make up for the death of her own dreams. But I knew early on there was no battling her, so I decided at the very beginning to just make the most of it, to even enjoy it, and I did. We lived close enough to Manhattan that my mother could schedule me for auditions, take me to rehearsals, and even find me a small-time agent. I got a lot of minor kid roles, and I worked hard to be the most diligent, devoted, and agreeable member of every cast that I was in. I had a reputation in a pocket of Broadway and off-Broadway circles as a decent enough little actor, but more importantly as being very easy to work with, very well-mannered. When it came time for college, my mother of course wanted me to go to Yale. She wasn't able to get in when she auditioned, but even though I had my eye on other schools and other cities, ones much further from home, I knew how happy it would make her if I at least tried. After all, the Yale School of Drama is incredibly selective, and what were the chances I'd even be accepted? I could go through the process, appease her, give her a few weeks of hope and excited fantasy, and then move on to my own plans. What could it really hurt me if it would make her happy for just a little bit? Well, I got in. The panel I auditioned for had all praised my talent and my affability. I think I charmed and smiled my way into a school I didn't even really want to attend. But it was such an honor. I should be grateful. I should show my appreciation and gratitude. After all, again, what did it hurt? Like any program, theater majors at Yale have a long list of required courses that they don't think they'll ever really need. Looking over the class catalog, I saw it there staring back at me. Stage combat. I'd seen a few fight choreographers work with adult actors over the years during productions that I'd been in. Fake slaps, fake punches, fake knife fights. 
I even once had to work with one of these choreographers myself when the character I played got dragged out of a room by her hair. I'll grant them this, it did always look really good. But I didn't think I had any interest in learning how to do it so well that I would eventually be the one teaching others how to get dragged off of a stage or fight on a film set. But by the end of the first class of my first week of my first year at Yale, I was hooked. There was something about the control of aggression, the physicality, the ability to walk up to the edge of pain and danger, but to trust and know that everyone was safe. It was the thrill of risk, but without any real risk itself. It gave you the power to seem scary or be scared, but in a way that only worked if everyone involved was at their absolute most focused. It is the very best manners masquerading as the very darkest behavior. I took what Yale would give me, but I wanted more. So I found private workshops, I bought DVDs, I went to plays I had no interest in except to see the work of a fight director who'd been involved. I got pretty good after a couple of years. At first I thought it could be good side work while I trudged up the acting ladder. Why would I want to wait tables and have to smile through gritted teeth at Times Square tourists pinching my ass when I could pay the bills choreographing fights for small theater companies who couldn't afford the big names in the business? And so I did that for a couple of years, and over time, my heart drew further away from acting and more and more towards staging violent exchanges. At a workshop, one of the masters recommended to me that if I really wanted to up my game, if I wanted to consider this as a full-time career, I should learn some real fighting. How much better could I be at walking up to that edge if I truly felt the razor itself? By the time I was 25, I was working steadily as a fight choreographer. I had tried Krav Maga, then more seriously taken up jiu-jitsu, and occasionally ventured into boxing. The instructor who suggested that route turned out to be completely correct. I wasn't great at any of the real fighting, but it did help fine-tune my skills in fake fighting, and that's really all I was after. But I'd be lying if I said it hadn't given me a little more self-confidence as I moved through my days, especially since everyone knows that just walking down a street in New York City is a daily invitation to catcalls and creepy come-ons. I felt like I could take care of myself if I ever needed to. When I'd first moved full-time to the city, I felt vulnerable. I saw every garbage-filled alley behind a row of restaurants as a putrid mouth, unhinging its jaws to swallow me if an attacker crept up from behind. I saw empty subway platforms after a late-night rehearsal as dripping, echoing, haunted mansions where the ghosts were men with no faces. I knew the dangers for a single woman just living an everyday life in this place, and the real fighting skills I was learning made me feel much more prepared for an ambush. What those skills didn't change was the programming deep in my brain, in my bones, probably in my DNA after generation upon generation of people-pleasing. A fear not from violence or attack, but fear of a furrowed brow or an offended co-worker, of displeasure merely for my honest existence. Those skills didn't change my manners. As hard as I worked to avoid any of that, it never once occurred to me what might be behind the furrowed brow, or that the offense taken might bring about physical retribution, that my very right to exist could be threatened by someone else's simple displeasure. The summer before I turned 27, I registered for a pair of programs in the Midwest. 
I would spend two weeks teaching at an advanced stage combat workshop in Chicago, and then an entire month of learning jujitsu with the masters, teachers from the Gracie family. I was over the moon and couldn't wait to spend every penny of my savings on this trip. But since it was my first real vacation, well, ever as an adult, I decided to plan some side trips along the way. I wanted to see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, the NFL Hall of Fame in Akron, and the Chihuly exhibit in Columbus, all stops on my way out. But mostly, I'd always wanted to hike a bit of the Appalachian Trail, so I mapped out a great little detour in the Hocking Hills of southeastern Ohio in the Wayne National Forest, Burr Oak State Park. I would do nothing but camp and hike, and in the evenings read by a fire for a full week. It seemed to me like the perfect way to get some peace as I went from one massive city to another, a time and place where I could be at peace with my thoughts, a chance to let down my guard. The trip from the rental car place in Manhattan to the campground in Burr Oak was just under nine hours. I made great time with only a couple of stops to answer nature's call and fuel up. I got into Gloucester around 6 p.m. with plenty of late June daylight left to pick a campsite and get myself set up. I had packed pretty much everything I'd need, and I hit up a little grocery store on the outskirts of town to restock my cooler with diet cokes, a couple of beers, and some snacks, popcorn if I could find it. I loved popcorn so much; it was one of the few things I shared with my mom without having to try, without faking it. When I was little and didn't feel well, she kept me home from school, sometimes even calling me out of rehearsals, and we'd snuggle on the couch under a big afghan my grandma made, eating popcorn and watching the stupidest daytime TV. No matter where I went or how old I got, popcorn felt like home. Popcorn felt safe. My little rental sedan struggled a bit on the very rough road that wound down to the Burr Oak campsites. It was now after seven. And though out on the main road the light was still good, it had grown dim in the thickening woods. I moved at barely five miles an hour, bumping over giant tree roots, plunging in slow motion into sinking divots in the dirt. At the official entrance, now hundreds of yards off the state route, there was a map of the park and a sign declaring campsites were based on the honor system. The car seemed grateful to stand still for a minute, and I climbed out to look at the map and pick a campsite. Next to the map was a big metal box with a numbered slot for each site. When you dropped your cash into the slot, you slid a little lever over the hole so it showed as no longer being available. That's why these were called primitive sites. It was true the system was primitive but perfectly efficient. I scanned the map. I had hoped to be as far away from people as possible. I lived in the largest city in the country. Humans stacked on humans in an unending sea of bodies, always only inches or feet from one another, sweating and breathing and even bleeding on each other. I was on my way to the third largest city in the country, which I assumed wouldn't be much different. So right now, I wanted space and solitude, and yes, a bit of loneliness. I saw that campsite one was open. No way. Everyone coming and going would remind me that I really wasn't that far from civilization. The entire back half of the campground seemed to be full. All of the little levers slid to closed. I guess I should have expected it since school had just let out. Site two was also occupied, but site three was open, and it looked like it was set off a little bit, not quite on the beaten path, just jutting off on its own. And there was no one in sites four, five, or six either. So maybe it would be okay. 
Daylight was burning, and I was never great at following instructions on putting things together, so I thought I'd just better pick a campsite and go put my tent up. I dropped my $20 bill into the slot for the metal box, four nights paid for, and slid the mouth closed with a thunk. Site three, it was. I drove slowly around the campground roadway, not that it ever became anything more than divots and roots, and saw that I had really managed to luck out into a nice little spot. A reasonable walk a hundred yards ago to the bathrooms, another hundred beyond that, the beach of Burr Oak Lake. And when I did start to unload my car at the spot, I saw that my only neighbors, whoever had taken up site two, seemed to be away. They had a little pop-up camper, a bit of gear set up around it, and a couple of mountain bikes laid down in the dirt near the fire ring full of extinguishing sand. But there were no lights. There was no sign of a recent campfire, no truck or SUV they would have used to pull the camper parked in the tiny gravel lot by the bathrooms. There was no sight of anyone, actually. Not anywhere. I thought I'd hit the jackpot. I managed to get the tent set up in under an hour. I know that sounds like a ridiculously long time for a pop-up tent meant for one or two people, but when I say I was never good at directions, I mean I really was not good at all at it. I did have a healthy sense of satisfaction with the eventual success, though, and I crawled into my sleeping bag around nine. It had been such a long day. I had a great area with a couple of nice trails picked out for tomorrow, and I was just ready to read for a bit by the battery-operated lantern filling up my red tent with the perfect amount of amber glow. When I woke up the next morning a little after dawn, I didn't even remember when I had fallen asleep. The book had slipped from my hand and was splayed open next to me. The lantern was still going. Its light barely even noticeable now with the speckled sunbeams slicing through the treetops and shooting into the tent. I felt amazing for having slept on the ground, with none of that residual grogginess, the sort of hangover that sometimes comes from a really hard sleep. I was up and moving from almost the second my eyes had popped open. I put on a hoodie to keep out the early morning woodsy chill, slipped into a pair of flip-flops, and headed to the bathrooms to get showered. My hair wet and clean, teeth minty fresh, I went back to the tent to change into some light hiking gear. I grabbed a couple of bottles of water and some fruit from my cooler, tossed a nice cold can of Diet Coke into the cup holder, and settled into the car for a short, scenic drive to my chosen set of trails. As I turned the first corner, I noticed the pop-up camper in spot two still looked empty. It was still dark. The bikes were exactly where they had been the night before. There was no sign anyone had spent the night there. Campsite two was completely empty. It almost felt like it was abandoned. Something about it felt off. But then it occurred to me, how would I even know what off was? This was my first real camping trip. I had read that some people on the Appalachian Trail would hike for days straight, sleeping on the trail instead of returning to camp. And obviously, if the tenants of Site 2 had not had their bike stolen or the camper ransacked by this point, they were right to assume their stuff was safe to leave unattended. You have spent way too long in the city, I thought, as I bumped and thumped over the tree roots back onto the main road. That first day, I did almost six straight hours of hiking. I spent some time climbing hills that felt more like mountains. I did long, flat, open walks through a couple of meadows and finished the day on a trail that dead-ended at a gorgeous waterfall. It was only around two in the afternoon, 
But I was exhausted and famished. I had underestimated the fuel that I needed for the day, and the fruit was just not enough. I'd spotted a diner on the way over in the morning and could barely wait to sink my teeth into a real meal on the way back. The diner did not disappoint. It was nice to see that some things could be depended on for continuity and stability, whether you were in the city or way out in the country. A heaping plate of omelette, home fries and toast with a thimble of juice and a white porcelain mug full of black coffee alongside it, all together made me feel right at home out here in the middle of nowhere. I skimmed a local paper the previous occupant of my booth had left behind as I ate every single last morsel on my plate. Yes, of course, that was how I had been taught to respect the cook by cleaning my plate, but for that meal, I really didn't need to force myself. I got up from my seat with a full belly and legs that were aching. I might have overdone it a bit for day one, but I had such a short window of time. I wanted to do it all and see it all. I wasn't about to let a little pain take a minute of it away from me. I got a couple of bagels wrapped up to go for the next morning so I'd have something better to get me through the days exploring. But I realized as I drove back that I needed some ice for the cooler and there was something else that I needed. What was it? Oh well, I figured it would come to me when I got into the grocery store in Gloucester. But it never did come to me because I got distracted by the magazines and by some fresh popped and bagged popcorn. I got an issue of Surfing Magazine out of pure curiosity. Who even knew such a thing existed? Got my cellophane wrapped comfort food and a big bag of ice. That needling feeling never quite went away, but I decided whatever I was forgetting couldn't be that important if I still hadn't remembered it. It was just after five when I got back to the campground. I made it through the long, winding entrance road with a little more confidence than earlier trips that the car's undercarriage wasn't going to be ripped out and left balancing on a giant oak root. But I thought to myself for at least the tenth time that if I ever came back, I had to rent something with a four-wheel drive. As I came into view of the half-moon path that made up the first six campsites, I was startled out of my wandering thoughts by a face. No, not a face. By a set of eyes. Somehow, before I even noticed, never mind fully took in the face or the whole shape of the body of a man sitting at a picnic table, I locked eyes with him. In a second that felt like an hour, I shook his stare and got a grasp of the rest of the view. Site one was the only one with a picnic table in front of it. And there he sat, his back to the trees at the edge of clearance. His elbows were propped up on the table, left hand dangling loosely next to the side of his face, his right hand holding a cigarette to his mouth. Even from this distance, probably 15 or 20 feet, I could see the skin on his arms looked crepey, like wrinkled paper. He wore what once had been a plain white t-shirt, which was now dingy gray and stained, jeans and black boots. His face was gaunt and leathered. His hair was thinning and gray, but what was left looked like it had once been slicked back James Dean cool guy style. When I managed to wrench my gaze from his figure and face for a second, I saw a motorcycle parked a few feet from the table and a small black saddlebag hanging from the seat. I saw a simple blue tarp strung up between the motorcycle and the table and a ratty looking sleeping bag laid out underneath the tarp, his accommodations. Before I was past him, the tires of my car barely crunching along, my eyes made their way to his again. His face was fixed and his gaze didn't seem to ever have left me. His eyes were still and dark like a flat ocean at night. 
one that you just know is very, very cold and with God knows what lurking underneath. I made it to the gravel lot, still shaken by something I couldn't quite put my finger on. Was it the blue tarp? His grungy clothing? I tried to shrug it off. I told myself I was being a snob, a bitch from Waspy, Connecticut, who judged someone just because they lived a little differently than I did. Who does that? Who is so unkind as to instantly find someone unappealing or even frightening just because they don't look like the people in my life? My shielded, privileged life. By the time I unloaded my little grocery haul and started walking to my tent, I felt genuinely guilty about my immediate reaction. My instinctual lizard brain response to a man who was, after all, completely minding his own business and hurting no one. When I got into my tent, I realized I should have peed when I was already back near the bathrooms. I tossed the bag on top of my cooler, gingerly pulled off the hiking boots that were starting to give me some blisters after two straight days in them, and slid into my flip-flops. <sighs> so much better. I flipped and flopped over the dirt road back to the bathrooms. Both of them were occupied, so I kind of stood there awkwardly looking around, hoping it wouldn't be weird for whoever came out first to find me standing there waiting. That always felt so uncomfortable when it was me, and I hated to make anyone else feel that twinge of embarrassment. As I waited, I spotted a weathered wooden bulletin board next to the bathrooms. It had some notices and maps tacked onto it, and a prominent sign in bold lettering about the rules for staying in the park. I wandered over, thinking it would just make everyone feel less awkward if I busied myself there until a bathroom was available. I noticed for the first time, at the top of the rules list, in all caps and boldface, all campers must be on site overnight. In slightly less aggressive type beneath it, the sign indicated that primitive sites were only for short-term stays, and occupied sites must be used for sleeping, not as a base camp for long-distance hikers. There were campgrounds at other locations in the National Forest that were available for this, and a map highlighting these locations was thumbtacked onto the corkboard next to the rules. I thought about Campsite 2 and how the campers there had deliberately violated this rule. They still hadn't returned, and their bikes and camper continued to occupy the space. At some point, I figured, a park ranger would come by and confiscate their stuff. As I headed back to my tent after using the bathroom, a decaying scent reached me through the slight chill settling in the air. I wrinkled my nose, rubbed my arms, and thought instead about the campfire I was finally going to get a chance to build. Tonight was the perfect night. The fire got going faster than I thought it would, and my achy muscles loosened as the scent of burning firewood began to fill the air, the fire crackling and popping as it danced to life. The smoky air warmed my blood and covered up the smell of whatever dead animal was out there in the woods. I set up my nylon camp chair with its tiny hammock of a footrest popped out in the front, cracked open a beer to set in the cup holder built into the armrest, and propped my bag of fresh popcorn against the side of a chair. I let out a blissful sigh as I sank into the seat with my book. I was finally ready to completely relax. I closed my eyes for a few seconds when a lightning bolt hit my memory. Shit! I yelled it louder than I'd intended. Batteries. I had all but drained the batteries in my lantern when I fell asleep with it on the night before. There was absolutely no artificial or ambient light to be had this place, and I knew once it was dark, it was going to be very dark. I was so annoyed at having forgotten something so important. 
and because I now had to climb out of my comfy chair and go over to the car to check and see if I tossed an extra set in the trunk somewhere. I spent 10 minutes rummaging around. No dice. As I walked back, I saw it was already getting pretty dim under the canopy of oaks, pawpaws, and maples, and I wondered if I should head back into town. I really didn't want to. My beer was already open, popcorn already nibbled, book calling my name. I decided against it, that the light of the fire would be plenty until bedtime, and it's not like I would need it after that. I was separated from my own train of thought when, as I approached my comfy chair again, I caught sight of spot two off to my left. Still dark, bikes still in the dirt. What if these people were hurt or lost? I shook my head. It was much more likely that they were simply breaking the rules, off hiking the Appalachian Trail, and would be back when they were done. As my eyes turned towards my sight, I jumped at a shape I wasn't expecting. A gray head of hair rose up above the back of my chair. I froze for a second and then slowly walked towards the campfire until I faced the man who was tilting back a swig of beer with his tattooed arms resting on the armrests of my chair. What the? He jerked his head towards me and smiled. Oh, sorry. I didn't think you'd mind. I heard you swearing a couple of minutes ago. Thought I'd pop over to see if I could help with anything. Don't worry. He continued as he held his hands up in a surrender gesture. I'm not a psycho or anything like that. He laughed easily and stood up, gesturing, offering for me to sit back down in my own chair. I stood with my feet planted, still stunned. He could see me hesitating, and he tilted his head like a golden retriever and smiled big. Hope I didn't scare ya. No, no, I'm just a little startled. Terrified, more like, but who says that? I awkwardly sat back down in my seat, which smelled like musty cigarettes now. He plopped down on the ground a few feet away, his mouth still smiling. But not his eyes. His eyes were still flat, black oceans. The contradiction of expressions on his face sent a chill down my spine. Something in me was screaming, this isn't right. But then he reached forward and offered me a fresh beer, one of his own. I stared at the bottle. Too many nights out with friends in New York made me hesitate to take a drink from a strange man. But God, how awful would it look to just decline? I reached out and accepted it silently. I wasn't sure what to say, and I started to feel like I was running out of time to make this a more comfortable interaction. I twisted off the top of the beer, relieved to find that it was properly sealed. You're being ridiculous again, I chastised myself in my mind. I finally found some words. Batteries. I, I meant to get some batteries for my lantern all day, and then I forgot to. I just remembered them when I shouted it out. Sorry for the foul language. He chuckled. Aw, oh, sweetheart, I've been riding bikes all over this country my whole life. I run into some of the nicest people you ever met, and some of the nastiest. One shattered cuss word don't bother me. Just want to make sure you're okay. I'm Gary. It's nice to meet you. See, now we're not strangers. At this, I actually relaxed a bit. See, you always think the worst of everyone for no reason, I thought to myself, resolved to be a little bit nicer to this poor man who was probably just a bit lonely. I told him my name and we made small talk as the night fell around us, the park now completely dark. I yawned, the fatigue of the day finally getting to me, and he popped up off the ground, moving pretty spryly for a guy I pegged as being in his late 50s or early 60s. Hey, I have a bunch of different batteries. What do you need? 
Oh, no, no, that's okay. I'll get some tomorrow. I actually need to head to bed shortly anyways. Long day of hiking planned for tomorrow. He ignored my cue to leave and instead looked down at me in my seat. Sunk in, feet up, now a few beers in and quite relaxed. He smiled again and this time the black ocean of his eyes seemed to come to life. They were more eerie now than they were when they were dormant. No, you need them. It's not as safe out here as you think. I suddenly felt paralyzed, pinned into the chair by his gaze, unable to move except for a small nod of my head. Okay, thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful. Without another word, he disappeared out of the range of the campfire's light. But just before he was enveloped completely by the dark, I saw him pause and look towards campsite too. He seemed to be staring at it intently, as if he saw something. I decided the fire and beer were playing tricks on my mind. Maybe he had heard a noise, or smelled that stench that I had smelled earlier. He wouldn't be able to see anything out there anyways. It was too dark. He returned a few minutes later with four size D batteries. I wondered how he knew that I needed Ds. I never told him what kind of batteries I needed. My breath caught and for a fleeting moment I wondered if he'd been inside my tent when I was away. I exhaled long and slow when I realized all those big camping lamps were probably the same and all took the same batteries. I struggled to straighten up as I thanked him. It occurred to me that maybe he had seen the campers in the next site when I was out hiking, and so I asked, Hey, have you seen any movement at that camper between us? I swear it's been dark ever since I got here, but I thought people weren't supposed to stay away overnight in this campground. Is it possible to laugh but not smile? Because that's what it looked like he did. He let out a gravelly smoker's laugh, his mouth never turning up at the corners, a laugh that turned into a cough. Eventually, he cleared his throat and said, Not everyone follows all the rules, you know, baby girl. Baby girl. <sighs> Something inside me clenched, but there was no point in reacting to it. That was probably how this grizzled old man just talked. I forced a smile. While he'd been gone, I noticed that he helped himself to my popcorn, too. I was starting to feel a little irritated at him, at the entire interruption of my relaxing night by the fire, and I really just wanted to go to bed. I didn't want to be rude. I was grateful for the batteries. I really was. I accepted them with both hands open together as he leaned over to give them to me, his fingers lingering a bit on my palm as he did. I looked at his eyes in that moment and went completely cold. Goosebumps leapt across my skin and my throat tightened. Okay, Gary, uh, it was great to meet you. I pulled out all my child actor bubbly cheer as I looked up at him. He was still leaning down towards me. I really have to be up super early, so I think I may turn in. He nodded, taking a step back but holding my eyes in his as I stood. I smiled as big as I could. We stared each other down for a few seconds. Something wasn't right. My heart thumped in my chest and the alarm bells that had first rung when I saw him sitting at the picnic table now cranked as loud as they could go. I had to find a way to quiet them. I needed them to let me think. Okay, you're okay. You're a trained fighter, for God's sake. You're a green belt in jiu-jitsu. This old man can't do anything to you. I drew in a long, slow breath and released it, forcing my heart to slow down as we stared at each other in silence. He finally nodded his head and tipped an imaginary cap, and then in one swift motion, he poured my bucket of sand all over the fire and extinguished it. The darkness hit faster than my eyes could adjust, 
I couldn't see his face anymore, but I heard him say with a low, raspy voice, like he'd drunk in some of the fire's sand, Sleep tight. I stood there a few seconds shaking in the darkness, shocked by the sudden disappearance of the light and heat from the fire. I turned to my right towards my little red tent and fumbled with the zipper in the pitch black. I managed to get inside and feel my way around to the lantern. After several attempts in the dark at putting the batteries in with shaking hands, flipping them, putting them back, I finally found the right combination of positive to negative, and the lantern came to life. Relief flooded over me as the amber light filled the tent once again. I was shivering, but beads of sweat rolled down the back of my neck. I wrapped my arms around my legs and pulled them close to my chest, sitting as still as possible. I strained to listen for any sound outside my tent, but could barely hear anything above the blood pounding in my ears. Finally, I lifted my head and heard silence. Nothing stirred outside, not even the wind. The tent was full of the warm glow of the lantern. It wasn't as bright as it had been the night before, but it would do. I still needed to change out of my day's clothing, use the bathroom one more time, wash up, and then go to bed. I stared at the zipper of the tent, afraid to pull it open. I could go without changing or even washing up, but I still had to pee. I cursed the beers I downed and reached for the zipper. Right before I ducked out of the flap, I grabbed the canister of mace and folding buck knife I kept in a pouch inside the tent. I opened them both, holding one in each hand, my pajamas tucked under one arm, and I hurried to the bathrooms. The water in the sink was freezing, and my face turned bright pink as I splashed it once, twice, three times. I smoothed down my hair. I stank. I desperately needed a shower, but it would have to wait until morning. For now, I just wanted to get back to my tent. I slowly opened the door of the bathroom and then sprinted out, knife in one hand, mace in the others, my dirty clothing thrown over a shoulder as I ran as fast as I could in my stupid flip-flops. I tripped and stumbled a few times on tree roots and rocks, barely catching myself from a bad spill. Those football players were right. A hundred yards was much further than you thought until you needed to get across it as quickly as possible, ducking and dodging possible attackers. As I approached the red glow of the tent, I saw that the zipper was closed, and I froze. I could have sworn I left it open. No, no, wait a minute. I wouldn't have left it open. I would have closed it to keep critters out. Feeling silly, I opened the tent and crawled inside. I put my lame weapons back into their pouch and slid into my very cozy, brand-new, state-of-the-art sleeping bag designed to make camping more pleasant for girls just like me. I thought of Gary out there in his paper-thin mat on the hard, bumpy ground two spots away. I felt a twinge of sympathy for him and a touch of guilt inside my own luxurious cocoon. I lay there for a few minutes, warming up in the down as my eyes drifted closed. I didn't want to sleep with the light on and waste more batteries, but I wasn't ready for the dark. I was right in that spot where you know you're awake, but you realize it's almost over. You're almost gone. That's when I heard it, and my eyes shot open. The voice came from inside my head, destroying my near slumber. It was the brusque voice of a guest instructor at one of my training sessions, and it broke through my foggy brain. When the tiny hairs in the back of your neck stand up, listen to them. They don't lie to you, ever. Don't be nice, don't be polite, hear them and get ready to fight like hell. I sat straight up, his words echoing in my mind. I remembered Gary's flat black eyes and I felt them on me. 
Had I been too polite, ignored the alarm bells, the tiny hairs on the back of my neck, afraid to be rude to this man I didn't even know? In that moment, I realized the light inside the tent was growing softer, softer and softer. And then it went black. In a matter of seconds, I heard the zipper of my tent pull open. He's on me before I fully register what's happening. I struggle to free my arms from the soft downy trap. I want my knife. I want my mace. He throws something over my head. In the smoky, musty, sweaty damp, I know right away it's his pathetic sleeping bag that only minutes ago I was feeling pity about. He's wrapped around me, half standing, trying to drag me out of my tent in a bear hug. I'm trying to scream through the worn fabric that suffocates me, inhaling the stench and gagging. We emerge from the tent in a twisted heap, still half hunched over. As I flail in feathers and expensive polyester, he hauls me to the left. I know where we're going. It all suddenly comes into crystal focus, there in the pitch black. Pitch black both outside and inside his disgusting bag. I hear the camper door swing open. He drags me up two metal steps. I feel sharp pain in my back and my legs, but somehow it feels very far away, like it's not really my pain. The dead animal smell comes over me in a tsunami. I vomit inside the bag, and now I can't breathe at all. He yanks the bag off me. I can't see, it's still too dark and my eyes can't adjust. But I know what his must look like right now. The monsters lurking under the dark cold waters have risen to the surface. I whip my head around to get my own vomit-soaked hair off my face before it makes me puke again. As my vision comes into focus, I see them there on the floor, both of the women, eyes open and lifeless, but very different than his. In the split second before the rock comes down on me, I wonder if they were excited about their trip, if they just wanted to be nice, if they heard a voice they ignored, if the hairs on the backs of their necks prickled when they first locked eyes with him. This story is based on a real-life encounter that the author, Sarah Kalin, had in 1999. Just like our protagonist, Sarah was on a solo camping and hiking trip in this very park, Burr Oak, in the Wayne National Forest. She encountered a loner with a motorcycle and a tarp as she arrived, and met his chilling, dead-eyed stare. As she rolled past him, she saw a deserted camper between their two campsites. She felt deeply uneasy but talked herself out of the fear that was creeping into her heart. But that night in her tent, when the voice of her instructor told her to run, she ran. For years, Sarah wondered if she overreacted, until years later, in her own research as a homicide investigator, she came across a photo of the notorious serial killer, Gary Hilton, who preyed on victims in national forests. She recognized the face, but even more importantly, she recognized his eyes. In that moment, she knew that ignoring her lifelong programming of just being nice and putting her own comfort last and choosing to listen to the voice that warned her to pay attention to the hairs on the back of her neck had probably saved her life. Tonight's tale was written by Sarah Kalin. Nighty Night is executive produced by Rabia Chaudhry and Colin Thompson. It's produced by DJ Lou Bell. It's edited and sound designed by Anton Doty. Original music by Andrew Gerlicher. 
Nighty Night is a cast original podcast.